Hello and welcome to Sea Change, a podcast series by the Scottish Fisheries Museum. This podcast asks a selection of the most knowledgeable people their thoughts on the current situations facing our seas and what they think the future looks like. Today I'm with Sir Ian Boyd um, and I'm very excited to, to have a, a chat with you today, Ian. Um, I wondered if you might be able to just start by sort of telling us a bit about yourself and your work. Yes, okay. Um, well, I'm a professor at the University of St Andrews um, and I've been here off and on since about 2001. But uh, before that, I was um, a researcher working on a major research programme in Antarctica for 14 years. Uh, and it was mainly focused on the Southern Ocean, so the, the ocean around Antarctica. And it was uh, focused on trying to understand the dynamics of that ocean in relation to human exploitation, which includes fisheries and that sort of thing. Um, uh, in more, more recently, I have um, been the Chief Scientific Advisor to the UK Government on Food and Environment, based at DEFRA in, in London. I was in that post for seven years, which gave me uh, a very broad view of what uh, the major challenges are, uh, many of which are actually located in the ocean. So um, this is a very interesting conversation to have, and I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely, and I think that that's, that's a really interesting point that that everything that informed your work there um, starts with with the ocean. Um, and that was something that came out in another of our podcasts and just how central mm. the ocean is to absolutely everything. So hopefully we'll get a, a great discussion here uh, for that reason. So our first sort of main question here is about how um, have you interacted with the seas in your in your work? And you've sort of alluded to that already. Well, I, I mean, I, I would describe myself as a marine and polar scientist. Mm. Um, uh, that's kind of been my career, my background. It's probably a bit more marine than polar, uh, because actually, since coming to the university here in 2001, uh, I've mainly been focused on marine science. Um, and that's about leading marine science strategically. So that means sort of being director of the Scottish Oceans Institute and uh, being a, an inspiration for other academics working in areas that are not my specialization. But my specialization has mainly been uh, marine mammals, uh, to some extent seabirds as well. Um, uh, and that's included things like penguins and albatrosses. Uh, but most of my work has been on seals and to some extent whales. Um, uh, but it's been focused on trying to use those as indicators of what's actually going on in a very, very large place. The, the marine environment is huge, it's very complex, it's very dynamic. Uh, and these animals, um, because of the way they live their lives, uh, actually can go out there and essentially sample the, that environment for us. And if you can understand their behaviour and their population dynamics, it's telling you something about what's going on in their world. Um, and being able to boil that down in such a way as to be able to then feed that back into how we interact with that world, particularly in fisheries management, but in other areas as well, um, then that can be a very useful thing to do. Uh, the areas other than fisheries management that I've worked in have been in the impact of sound in the marine environment. We produce a lot of noise when, we're, when we go into the marine environment, mainly ship noise, uh, but we also produce a lot of noise from things like sonars. Uh, and I was very interested in uh, what the effect of military sonars was on whales. And I did some major experiments uh, actually on behalf of the US Navy 
in the Bahamas looking at the, 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 um, uh, the, the response of uh, beaked whales to military sonars as well. So a lot of my, my interests have been around the human interaction with the ocean, but seeing it through the lens of uh, animals that actually call the ocean their home and seeing their reaction to that human interaction. Absolutely. I think that's such a key point. And it comes back to this idea of that there is this disconnect, I think, between humans and the oceans. And I think people, you know, genuinely wouldn't necessarily think about the noise under the sea. I think the, the vast majority of people don't necessarily make that connection. And that idea that the, the animals are samplers for what's going on under under the seas is, is a fascinating one. I'm really excited to hear you expand on that. Um, our next question is about how you go about engaging the public in your work. And I guess that will have changed slightly in the different roles that you've mm. had over the years. But it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I, I think through my career, and I've had a fairly long career, um, the whole emphasis on engaging the public has actually changed enormously. I think mm. in the early parts of my career as a scientist, it really wasn't something that uh, scientists were expected to do an awful lot of um, and we were never really trained to do it, uh, it the, the, there wasn't much incentivization to do it either uh, but actually that has changed uh, tremendously through time and, 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 and it's a good thing that it has changed as well because uh, scientists whatever discipline they're working in need to be able to explain what they're doing to the public in ways that engage the public because actually most of science is paid uh, by paid for by public money, um, mm -hmm. and and so it, it's it's absolutely essential. Um, but in terms of methodologies, um, obviously, if there are interesting things come out of research, then one tries to uh, explain that in the context of national media by producing press releases and those sorts of things. And and that is something that has been a fairly major uh, part of my activities. But overall, what I like to do is is engage the public sort of more more one to one and directly through providing public lectures, which mm -hmm. I've done quite a lot of in the past, both about my Antarctic work and uh, to some extent about my the the work I did in Wales, but also even more so while I um, was was chief scientific advisor in the UK government, um, because there I was trying to engage with a a very broad swathe of uh, of the public, everything from farmers to fishermen uh, to you know people who were concerned about plastics uh, to people who uh, are concerned about food waste and all those sorts of different things. Um, and the, the engagement process is both that one-to-one, -one, the kind of providing lectures, providing information, uh, writing blogs. I've written uh, a lot of blogs over the last um, uh, six or seven years or so. Um, which some people read, I think. I uh, sometimes get <laughs> feedback on them. Um, uh, uh, but also, uh, there, you have to sort of segment the public to some extent mm. in, in, in this respect. Uh, and the public is everything from uh, a senior government minister, maybe a cabinet minister, uh, in my view, all the way through to just the person who, you know, in the street who's interested in what you're doing. Um, and uh, you have to use different methodologies for working with all those different different groups. Mm -hmm. um, it's a big task to do, uh, and some people are better at it, at different parts of it than others. Um, uh, but a lot of the work that I have done in terms of trying to engage, trying to engage over the last few years 
has been to produce summary reports of uh, some of the big challenges that we have. I did one in resource and waste, but I also did one in the oceans, mm-hmm. and it's called the Future of the Sea report. It's called a, it was a foresight analysis that looked at the, the, the big trends that are going on in the ocean and saying, well, actually, if those trends keep going, what is the ocean going to look like in 20, 30, 40 years' time and how do we as a country respond to that in terms of the kind of policies we want to put in place and the sorts of things we want to do with the oceans? Um, uh, and so, so a, you know, a report was produced on that. And actually, it has had quite a lot of influence uh, mm-hmm. in terms of public policy, the formulation of public policy in London. So it's, it's, a, it's a complex and dynamic mecha- uh, process, but it's one of actually listening as much Absolutely. as it is giving information. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think the, the, the listening part of it has not been emphasised enough a lot of the time. And I think that's why we see a lot of the kind of protests that we have on the street for, you know, Extinction Rebellion and things like that. There are people out there who have, who have real concerns uh, and they feel as if they're not being listened to as much as they should be. Should be. And part of my job was to translate that, that listening process into messages for people uh, particularly inside government, who who are uh, making making decisions that would affect people's lives. Absolutely, I guess it's about it's about arming people with the knowledge and listening to their concerns, isn't it? And Absolutely, that's, that's yes. The, yes. The, two, the two-way process. Absolutely. Um, so our meatiest question, perhaps, in this interview, is about how your work has broadened your understanding of the issues that are facing our seas. Um, I, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on this. Well, um, I, I mean, I suppose I started, like any scientist, uh, with a very, uh, quite a narrow, a narrow focus. Uh, you know, I've, I've already mentioned that, you know, I was focused on um, uh, marine mammals and seabirds. Um, and, you know, my, my interest uh, in them was, was driven mainly by what they can tell me about the, uh, the, 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 the general state of, of, of the ocean. Um, but as my career has gone on I think my interests have got broader and broader and broader and you know they've ended up being uh, interests around well what is what is going on in uh, in the whole of the the global economy that is then affecting the ocean and vice versa how is how are the dynamics of the ocean feeding back to affect us um, as as consumers of the services that the environment gives us um, and those are really big issues. Um, uh, my 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 view is that we actually have a, a huge effect on the ocean. Uh, I, I don't think it's just my view. I mean, I think that there's 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 lots of evidence for that. Uh, there's there's a huge number of human-based impacts that are happening in the ocean, uh, from ocean acidification through to eutrophication, through to the impacts, direct sort of physical impacts of fisheries, through to the ecological impacts of fisheries, through to um, uh, diffuse pollution and uh, a whole host of other things. Uh, many of which I think until relatively recently were thought to be um, within the ocean's capacity to absorb. Mm-hmm. And we now know, I, I think, you know, I think a generation ago there was quite a lot of scepticism about whether we really did have impacts. But I think now we we absolutely know we have these impacts, and the ocean is changing as a result of that. Um, uh, so, I, I, and and we need to understand what the drivers behind these impacts are, uh, and many of them are 
are, are, are driven by things that we do in our everyday lives. Um, uh, you know, we could talk about PCB pollution, for example. Now, PCBs occur within um, uh, usually electrical systems, but sometimes in uh, the sealants for windows and things like that. Those are extremely poisonous chemicals that um, uh, are, are extraordinarily stable. And if we do not dispose of them appropriately, they will end up in the ocean. And a lot of them have ended up in the ocean and they are uh, um, being concentrated through food chains. They are almost certainly one of the reasons why killer whales around this country uh, pretty much no longer exist. I mean, mm. such, we do have some killer whales, particularly in the far north, but, but actually some killer whale populations have disappeared almost certainly because of uh, those types of uh, pollutants being biomagnified through the food chain. Uh, so we, are, we have to understand these types of effects and we have to understand that actually it comes from a lot of things that we do in our everyday lives in the terrestrial environment, in our own homes, in our own cities, uh, you know, when we drive our cars along the road, it is not disconnected from what is actually going on in the ocean. Um, and, that, and I think that's a really powerful message that people uh, probably need to understand. I think, as you said in your introduction, uh, we tend to feel a bit uh, disconnected from the ocean. It's, 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 it's out there. It's, it's over the horizon. Uh, we're, we're not seeing it uh, in our everyday lives. But that doesn't mean to say we're not affecting it. Absolutely. It's this idea of sea blindness, isn't it? That, exactly. That, that, yes. That, that concept. It's sort of out of sight, out of mind, sort of, uh, the ocean a lot of the time. And the, the, there's another aspect to the ocean, which is that it's this issue of common ownership. With land, at least we have, we have an ownership structure for land. You know, um, in the ocean... We're, we're only just developing that with, um, you know, uh, coastal zones and uh, extended um, EEZs and things like that, which, uh, which are, are giving uh, uh, appropriate governance for the ocean. But we mustn't forget that the ocean is just this, this, it's this big liquid that's slopping around and things move around within it. And uh, we need to be able to govern the ocean uh, jointly, because if we don't govern it jointly, uh, we can't govern it in small parts in the way that we sometimes govern, la govern land. So we can't take a terrestrial focus or a terrestrial uh, 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 values-based system and apply it to the oceans in the same way as we do with, with, uh, with, 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 with how we manage land. Absolutely, it's kind of it's kind of like a, a universal a universal thing, isn't it? Everyone is affected by the ocean, and exactly, yeah. I, you know, it, it's I, and, and I experienced this with Antarctica as well. Antarctica is a continent that isn't isn't state owned. There are state claims within it, but those claims have been suspended uh, using the Antarctic Treaty. So it's an international territory, and the ocean is very much like that. Uh, and there are, of course, government structures around it, but the question is, are they strong enough and are they effective? And, um, uh, you know, I think that many people would say they're not strong enough and they're not sufficiently effective at the moment. Absolutely. Do you think that's something that's sort of come into um, people's awareness fairly recently, that idea of it, it needing to have sort of, sort of stronger controls? Is that a, a recent development, would you say? Well, it I depends what you mean by recent. I, I certainly <laughs> think it's it's uh, it's developed over the last thirty or forty years. Yes. Yep. If you, I mean, if you go back to, uh, you know, how let's just say how fisheries were structured and managed, uh, you know, after the Second World War, through the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, and maybe into the early nineteen seventies, 
it was pretty much a free for all. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, gradually we've we, we've brought management in to bigger and bigger parts of the ocean to try and get that under control. Um, but it's been a long and, and difficult process to get that on to get that, that management control in place. And in many, many parts of the world, it still doesn't exist. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, we, we, we shouldn't be complacent about this. Uh, I, I, you know, around the UK and European waters, we've got uh, a pretty uh, sort of highly developed management structure for the ocean. Um, we've got something called the OSPAR um, uh, um, regulations, which, which uh, help to manage the whole of the Northeast Atlantic area in collaboration across all the, all the coastal states, a uh, collaboration across all the coastal states in, in the Northeast Atlantic. Uh, you know, that sort of um, uh, collaborative approach doesn't exist in many other parts of the world mm -hmm. where there are, there are huge pressures on the ocean. Um, I think they will get there with it, but they will probably only get there because they understand that the current system that they have is completely unsustainable and they will all lose unless they actually get uh, proper governance in, in place. And I'm, uh, it's sad to say that actually that's one of the reasons why we have that governance in place, because actually we were beginning to see the really negative effects of not having it. Um, so everybody has to learn by their mistakes, but unfortunately the thing that suffers at the end of the day is the ocean. Absolutely, and it's a matter of urgency. It's, it is. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. I wonder whether the fact that you know, when when we, especially us in Scotland, we live, you know, lots of us by the sea, and maybe it's it's almost more difficult to comprehend when you're you're in a landlocked country the sort of the immediate impact that you you have on on the sea. I don't know. Well, I, I you know, I think if you have direct contact with it, you know, if you have the opportunity to go walking on beaches and you see litter on beaches, then you know, it's you, you. Many many people will start asking questions. Well, why mm. did that litter get there? Is there something I can do about it? Um, uh, th those sorts of things start adding up. However, what I would say is that a lot of the the problems in the ocean are not immediately visible to people. Yeah. Um, and and it 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 isn't like um, uh, like a tre that that like a land based system where. You know, if, if somebody goes and cuts down a forest, then you see it, you know. Absolutely. Um, uh, if, if, if a kelp forest just disappears in the oceans, actually, you wouldn't notice it. Mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of its ecological impacts, it's at least as big, if not bigger, than cutting down a, a, you know, a, a, a forest on land. Um, so, you know, we don't, we, it's hard for us as terrestrial animals to, to really fully comprehend the scale of the, the changes that are going on in the ocean. And many of them are chemical as well. Uh, so you know, ocean acidification. Um, you know, we're not we're not organisms that re re require um, uh, calcium carbonate to make make shells. So we're not really worried too much about that. Yeah. If you're if you're a, a you know a, a mollusk that requires a shell, then it's pretty serious. If you've got something that's acidic and is going to um, dissolve your shell. So uh, you know, we're we're not uh, we're not faced with it on a day-to-day -day basis and that actually means that it's quite hard for us to make uh, intelligent decisions on a day-to-day -day basis about what we do uh, that is that, that is designed that there are the um, decisions that are designed to reduce the impact we have on the ocean um, in order to do that I think we we and I say we as, as in in scientists but also communicators need to be able to feed that information back to people 
in such a way that they can have the information to be able to make intelligent decisions and they can understand that doing one thing has a bigger impact than doing another thing. And we frankly haven't been very good at doing that at all, about, not just about the ocean, but, but all sorts of different things. Absolutely. Just get that message out there. So mm. hopefully this podcast will uh, will will help with that. That's, well, I hope I hope it will raise some people's raise it raise raise the attention in people's minds. Yeah, yes. that's 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 our hope. So here's an interesting question for you: If you could tell someone something they might not know about the sea, what would it be? Well, I mean, I think there's there's lots of interesting um, things. I, I think one of the things that interests has interested has yeah interested me most recently is the idea that sea level is not the same everywhere in the ocean mm. um uh you know we talk about sea level rise actually sea level rise is a very very difficult thing to measure because even though you know if we if we take water and put it in a container it will uh it will automatically level off mm -hmm. um so so that the surface of the water will uh, at one side of the container will be exactly the same as the surface water at the other side of the container in the ocean it's not like that it, it, <laughs> it, it you know the ocean is a big place and for example um uh, one of the reasons why sea level uh, is 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 slightly lower in northwest scotland uh, is because of the gravitational pull of greenland uh, and the Greenland ice ice cap. So mm. water is being pulled northwards by the Greenland ice cap. Um, uh, you know that sort of piece of information I just find fascinating. But it actually adds complexity to our understanding of sea level rise. In some places, it's going to rise faster than others. And uh, for some people, that's actually quite a challenge. You know, if they if they're trying to think, well, what do I do about sea level rise? And then they're told, well, actually, in one part of the country, it's going to rise faster than the other. They think, well, what's going on here? That's a really rather strange thing to happen, isn't it? Yeah. But there are very good under underlying reasons for that. Um, uh, but sea level is a difficult thing to measure, funnily it enough. certainly sounds like it, that's yes. for sure. <laughs> um, I guess that leads us on quite quite nicely to our second last question here. And that idea of, you know, if you if you feel that you don't have control over... You know, if, if the scientists don't have control over the, the seas, you know, how, how can we have control over the seas? What can our listeners do to play their part in the next 50 years of the sea? Well, I, I mean, I think I've kind of said it already it's it's to I, I think you'd have to be inquisitive mm -hmm. uh, I, I, and want the information. And when the information about the ocean and what we do to the ocean is provided, be sensitive to what we do in our everyday lives that is going to reduce that impact. So what I would, what I really hope we'll get a lot better at doing is providing people with the information they need to be able to make um, uh, informed decisions. Um, what I would ask people to do is to is to receive that information with an open mind and to work with it. In their daily lives to try and improve what they do to to minimize their impact on the ocean so that that that's really it i mean there are lots of other things about engagement with you know cleaning up beaches all those sorts of things are really really good uh, but actually we'll make the biggest impact uh, if we all let's say reduce our impact on the ocean by 25 percent simultaneously mm -hmm. and we can do that mm -hmm. it's 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 possible for us to do that just by being 
uh, more intelligent about what we actually do with our lives. Mm. Change starts on land. It change starts on land, and it's about behaviour change. It's about us changing the way mm. we do things. Uh, it's not about turning to the ocean and saying, well, actually, well, we just need to manage this bit of ocean differently. It's us that are the problem, yes. and we need to change ourselves. Absolutely. A call to action. Yes. So our final question for you today, Ian, is about where you see the seas in 50 years time a big question but one that i feel you're quite well equipped to answer <laughs> well I, I this may be a bit challenging for people because um actually i see the seas uh, in 50 years time in uh, in quite a significant worse state than they are at the moment mm. and that's 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 because we have already set in train uh, a whole um a range of different things that are going on which, because the ocean moves quite slowly and it mixes really slowly and it's very big, um, I think that those, the, despite the fact that we may start doing lots and lots of good things between now and 50 years' time, uh, the effects of what we've done over the past 50 years will still be being, being felt and they will be being pulled through. And one of the, one of the best examples of that is of ocean acidification. That mm. is going to take hundreds of years uh, possibly even thousands of years to work out of the system, um, uh, even if we get get our carbon emissions, uh, you know, under control over the next thirty years or so, um, the effects of ocean acidification will be seen uh, for many, many generations down the road. Um, so, so there's there's a slightly negative message there. I think there's a positive message in that some things will respond very quickly. So, you know, I, I, if, we, if we talk about fisheries, you know, I, I think that um, we will start to get the, the fisheries impacts much, much more under control, uh, particularly in the, in the tropics. Uh, um, I mean, I think that around the UK, uh, we are reasonably good at it. We could be a lot better at it. Uh, and, and we will get a lot better at it. And we'll start seeing, certainly around the UK coast, I think we'll see our coastal strip becoming um, more biodiverse again. Uh, if we look at, say, you know, the east coast of the UK, uh, you know, the, the Firth of Tay, the Firth of Forth, they used to be actually very diverse communities um, uh, through a variety of uh, actions, uh, some of which are because of industrial pollution, but some of which are because of fisheries. We've um, almost denuded them of a lot of the, the biodiversity that was there. I think in 50 years' time, we could have reversed that. Mm -hmm. So we, we could see some really positive, really positive change. But at the background of this is some of these long-term things that are going on that, um, well, we, we need to start now to, 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 to correct them, but they will still be having quite a negative impact. I think that's the thing. It's about keep, keeping the faith, really, isn't it? If you don't Absolutely. see immediate results, you have to, you have, to have the faith that they, they will have an impact. Yeah, I agree. Um, but also, that's a very hopeful message, I would say. There is there's well, the I, chance to make yeah. a difference. I mean, there, there, it, it's, poss it's, it's quite possible to become very depressed very quickly yes. if you look at some of these sorts of things. Uh, but actually, I think that we need to take a very positive attitude to it. And if we do, and if we do it uh, you know, at large enough scale and we think big and broad and are really ambitious... Um, we can actually turn it to a positive message. You know, we have the power to change this. There's no doubt about it. But as I said before, that we have that power, but we need to change ourselves to do it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for ending on a rousing note there. Um, thank you 
for speaking to me today, Ian. It's been absolutely fantastic. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Sea Change, the Scottish Fisheries Museum podcast series that accompanies our exhibition of the same name, running from the 24th of January to the 21st of June 2020. Join us next time when we'll be speaking to Dr Richard Shelton.